coming up on Garden Talk. You don't have to go buy calcium at the store. You can make your own calcium with eggshells and vinegar. I love vermicompost. Using worm compost is one of the best natural ways to feed your plants. You don't need guanos or cow manure or all any of those other things. So the first thing you need to gauge is how much food waste are you producing? And then how much do you need to augment on top of that? And in general, the worms aren't going to escape because they don't like light. To get the full benefits out of cover crops, you need to chop and drop. In general, right, you should never have naked soil. After a while, if you have a good amount of soil and you have a good process going, you don't actually have to go buy soil either. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grout, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 38. In this episode, I interview Hota Herb. He has been gardening for 35 years, and he has extensive knowledge when it comes to regenerative farming or gardening. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. He'll talk about what regenerative gardening is, its benefits, and several different practices that you can implement in your garden. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast who help make that goal possible. AC Infinity is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code Mr. Grow It will get you a discount on their products. I've been using their Cloudline T6 and T4 inline fans for several years now, and I absolutely love the automation built into them. On the inline fans controller, you can have set points for high and low temperature, as well as high and low humidity. This greatly helps control my indoor garden environment, so the temperature and humidity stays in the ideal ranges. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below, and don't forget to use coupon code MrGrowIt for a discount on their products. Thanks to Dutch Pro for sponsoring this podcast. Dutch Pro products are now available in several countries across the world. For those of you that don't know, Dutch Pro is a plant fertilizer company that has base nutrients, additives, and pH regulators. They have different formulas of base nutrients for if you're in soil or if you're in hydro or cocoa. They also formulate their base nutrients for if you're using hard water or if you're using RO or soft water. I will leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below. And you can use coupon code MrGrow10DP for a discount on their products. Big shout out to Spider Farmer for sponsoring this podcast. Spider Farmer is well known to produce high quality LED grow lights at a price lower than nearly all other companies. They have board style LED grow lights as well as bar style LED grow lights. I've used their SF1000, SF2000, and SF4000 LED grow lights in the past and I got some excellent results with them. They also have grow tents, inline fans, and carbon filters. I will leave a link to Spider Farmer down in the description section below and you can use discount code MrGrowIt5 during checkout for a discount on their products. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Hota Herb. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Really, really excited to have this conversation with you today. I'm excited to have you on. You have extensive knowledge when it comes to regenerative gardening or regenerative farming, whatever you want to call it, KNF. You do a lot of these practices within your garden. I know you through Instagram. I also seen that you've been on other podcasts and shows and just spilling a bunch of good knowledge. So super excited to have you on today. This is going to be pretty much like an, I would say an introduction to regenerative gardening. A lot of my audience, I would say, is I would say a majority probably are home growers and that they are probably more on the bottled nutrient side of things. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a few organic gardeners as well that are part of it. But I know there's a lot of people that are looking to transition over to the organic side, looking to start regenerative gardening. So I thought this would be a good episode to kind of be an introduction to it. And then hopefully viewers will be able to get an understanding of it, at least a basic understanding of what it is, and hopefully learn some practices that they can implement in their garden, you know? Yep. Yep, and I'm going to uh, hopefully provide some fantastic uh, uh, names as well for people to follow up on because there's just so much great work going on uh, all over the globe, really, 
uh, in regenerative farming practices. So it, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I personally got into growing things uh, because I grew up in a food business. And um, so uh, I was always around <clears throat> fresh foods, uh, fresh herbs and ingredients that my uh, family used in the cooking. Uh, my grandfather was a butcher, so he also used to go get the full sides of beef. And my dad ran restaurants and used to pick out all the vegetables and, and fruits and things by hand. And uh, we always had gardens going as well so that we had fresh stuff to cook with, lots of rosemaries and uh, spices and garlic and onions and things like that. My, my parents were always growing uh, some type of an ingredient. And as I got older and, and was continuing to work in the food business, we always had uh, herbs available at the restaurants. There was usually something uh, growing out back that we would go and pick at the beginning of the day or, <clears throat> excuse me, or we were getting lots of fresh herbs in. And I always would um, tend to gravitate towards helping care for those plants and, and helping bring the fresh stuff in and helping pick out the right uh, the right types of vegetables and things to consume. So, th so that was my background. And, and so I have a real appreciation for high quality food. And um, so that's really where I got started. And um, I've always been really interested in just gardening and having those uh, ingredients at hand year round. I put, you know, basil and parsley and other things on my windowsill. Uh, I keep them under fluorescent lights, uh, do different things to keep them going year round. I, <clears throat> as I was talking with you earlier, I've started playing around with microgreens too. I love microgreens. They're fantastically, uh, fantastic to taste and uh, tremendously beneficial uh, health-wise for you. So that's, uh, that's kind of where I got into it. And uh, regenerative farming is um, a, um, really, really important. Um, if you look at how, where our food comes from. And, and unfortunately, we've gotten very disconnected as a society uh, on where our food comes from, right? Most people's interaction with food is at the store, the grocery store. They have no idea where it came from. They don't know what the plant looks like it was picked off of. They may not even know that much about the animal that it came from either. And um, that disconnection uh, has allowed a lot of uh, practices that have been going on that have been harmful uh, to the environment and very impactful uh, to all sorts of different things because our environment is connected, right? You can't, uh, everything impacts everything else. Uh, the, um, the winds that uh, blow in the Middle East pick up nitrogen and sand that blows across in the atmosphere and lands in Brazil and is actually one of the is one of the ways that the, that the rainforests are neutrified. So we are in a big, large global connected system. But when you look closer to home and you look at our um, agricultural practices, unfortunately, over the last 150 years, and, and really the last 70 years primarily, commercial agriculture has uh, followed practices that while they were able to produce large amounts of food, that food did not have a lot of nutritive value to it. And all of those practices were extremely detrimental to the land that those uh, foods and animals were being grown on. Um, what, you know, the farmer will grow on a bunch of land and use it until it's basically just dead and then move on to another plot of land and then move on to another plot of land and they keep going and going and going and the, the property becomes so depleted in natural biology and natural protections that it's not able to heal. And so regenerative farming is a, a, a whole bunch of different practices that revolve around trying to re, regenerate the area. But in general, what we're trying to do is leave the land better than when we got it. 
So as opposed to this almost strip mining approach that has caused us to lose 70% of the topsoil in the middle of the United States uh, that was responsible for the dust bowl uh, that's been responsible for that's responsible for a lot of our flooding and runoff problems and pollution within our oceans and rivers today um, is because of this destruction of the natural environment. You can farm in ways, though, that help actually regenerate the soils and help give back to the land and capture carbon and um, stop runoff. So there's less flooding because it'll let, the water can flow down into these really, really healthy soils. So regenerative farming is, again, looking is looking for ways to rebuild and make things better than when we left them. Organic is not the same as regenerative. And that's an important thing to remember. Organic means that all of the things that went into the making of that plant or animal were also certified organic. The seeds, the nutrients, the soils, the teas, whatever was applied to those plants had to be certified organic for them to be able to claim that this is a certified organic product. However, it's still in many cases following bad commercial practices which continue to destroy the land like tilling. Tilling is one of the largest uh, reasons why we've ha we have so many problems with our soil health today. Um, and, and, you know, tilling has been around for a long, long time. Uh, if you go back, even in U.S. history, some of our first presidents were promoters of tilling as a way to break up the land and make it a little bit easier for planting. And in many cases, the way that we used to till in those days with like just a big wedge dragged behind a horse was not as bad as what we do today, where we have these huge mechanized spinning discs that cut through the soil and destroy all of the natural fungal and biology, biological life that's in that soil, all the worms, all of the uh, orthropods, all of the fungal bodies, they get destroyed by tilling. So what are you left with? You're left with a bacterial, a highly bacterial soil that isn't as balanced for the plant. This causes increase in weed pressure, it causes increases in pest pressures. Um, it Again, it, it, it causes the soil to lose its ability to retain water. So we have to use more water to feed our plants uh, because of the loss of the fungal and back biological life in the soil. The plants aren't able to get as much access to the minerals and nutrients that are in that soil. So you have to add more stuff on, right? So even if you're using an organic product, but you till your soil, you're still not following regenerative practices. Regenerative practices are also great for animals as well. It's not just about plants. And in fact, the two together are uh, a symbiotic combination that needs to be followed. Um, one of the things that um, I think is, is uh, really interesting for vegetarians to consider, okay, is that we still need cows, okay? The reason is that we don't have the herds of animals that used to exist in nature that would help with the basic biological processes that regenerated the soil. Their urine and defecation, they're churning up the land, but primarily in large herds that moved at very rapid paces and didn't stay in one place for a very long time because of predators. That type of movement, that type of activity 
is extremely beneficial for the land. And if you look at places in the U.S. where they've actually allowed the wild buffaloes to come back, those grasslands have come back from what they once were to once they once were. That, and they were, in some cases, almost desertified uh, because there weren't, wasn't the proper type of animals on that land. Just holding cattle in pens outside, though, is not enough. You have to rotate them much more often than our practices are today. And you also need to keep them in smaller pens to keep them clumped a little closer so that you get some of the benefits of them stomping the, the ground and, and kind of breaking down the cover crop uh, and vegetation back into the soil, uh, but also creating small pockets where water and bacteria can build because their hoof prints will actually create these little puddles and micro microbiomes. Um, and again, the urine, the feces and all those things. And by keeping them rotating, you don't allow those animals to eat all the vegetation to the point where it's detrimental to that land, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of brothers, and I, I think its last name is Silva, but I can't remember the last name. But they're doing some stuff in, in the Oaxaca Desert, which is in between Texas and Mexico. And it's basically one of the largest deserts in the world, the Oaxaca Desert. And they, uh, a, a large portion of their property is in that desert. And what they did was they changed the way they uh, moved their cattle, their cattle farmers. Um, so they changed the way they moved their cattle and were able to actually rebuild the entire area of their land through proper cattle rotation only. By using proper cattle rotation, the natural species came back in. The birds and the animals carried the seeds, the plants spread, the biology moved with the water and the streams and things started to re come back from being a desert actually turn back into a grassland naturally just by changing the way they move their cattle. But the use of cattle was necessary and important. So um, bringing cattle across a field before you do planting is a great way to help reinvigorate your field, working with your neighbors, having your neighbors maybe feed on some of your crops so that they're their cows are also getting some of the benefits of your naturally grown vegetable vegetation, and they're also helping uh, heal your land as well. Um, so lots of great things. Some people to look at would be Dr. Elaine Ingham, uh, who is the person who coined the soil food web. And um, really learn about the soil food web because it's a tremendous, tremendous important part of regenerative farming. Uh, Ray Archuleta. Gabe Brown are also some fantastic people that you can go find out more from, um, and uh, those are those are definitely some 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 names I would recommend looking up and finding out more about if you're interested in regenerative practices. I follow <clears throat> primarily a, a family of farming called Korean Natural Farming, uh, which is a family again. It's a Korean-based natural farming set of practices that utilizes um, natural inputs that you collect locally in your environment to feed your plants. So you collect plants to feed your plants. You use ferments, fermentation, and uh, vinegars and sugars and other techniques for capturing uh, indigenous microorganisms and building beneficial inputs uh, for your own gardens. I, this is what I do all the time. I make all my own inputs. I don't buy anything at the store, at the grow store. Um, if I go to a grow store, it's because I need a new fan um, or something along those lines. I don't uh, go to the grow store for nutrients. I actually make all of my own nutrients. I make FPJs, which are fermented plant juice, FFJs, fermented fruit juices. Uh, you can make your own calcium, your own calcium. You don't have to go buy calcium at the store. You can make your own calcium with eggshells and vinegar or oyster shells and vinegar. Seven days with a breathable cap and you have your own calcium for pennies. 
Um, and it, it's really, really, really interesting um, way of creating uh, nutrients and inputs for your plants. It's a wonderful way of farming. And all of the inputs are, in many cases, good for us as humans as well. They're good for animals. So there's approaches for chicken coops, for, for no-smell chicken coops, and no-smell pigsties with Korean natural farming, which are amazing, using lactic acid bacteria um, or lactobacillus and uh, some other techniques. Uh, just really, really cool stuff. Uh, so I hope that uh, helped kind of give a, a little bit of a background and a primer on regenerative farming. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot, very interesting stuff there, a lot to unpack. So just a quick recap, I got a short list here. So regenerative gardening, some of these things you said, some of them you didn't say, you know, sun grown, you know, rely on the sun to grow instead of kind of doing it indoors, crop rotation, closed loop on-site plant nutrition, composting systems. So for for watering, doing strategies through soil management, irrigation methods, uh, using rainwater, right? Right. Yep. Absolutely. Talked about how it's beneficial to animals. You know, healthy plants with companion planting, cover cropping, on-site food systems, pest management, not relying on chemical pesticides and herbicides. So a whole bunch of different things can be enacted here. Yep. Now narrowing it down to kind of the home grower, you know, the person indoors that's doing their own gardening. You know, maybe they have a six or twelve plant setup or house plants or whatever. Talk to us about closed loop operations. I know a lot of people, that is something that you can enact within the home gardening. So can you first tell us like, what is closed loop operations yep. and what are some things that people could do at home in order to implement that? Yep. Uh, so I've actually mentioned a few of them already, but closed loop has to do with uh, basically getting everything you need from within the confines of your own property. Right. So if you're running a farm, nothing comes in from the outside. Um, You're building and utilizing all of the things within your property to feed and support and nurture and sustain your farm. Uh, It's the same thing for us as home cultivators, uh, whether you're growing uh, edible or medicinal plants, it really doesn't matter. Um, even your regular house plants as well, in many cases, can benefit from these systems. And um, as a uh, as as just a homeowner in general, right? Composting is a tremendous uh, is a tremendous benefit. Um, so if you're going to um, if you have some a little bit of land. Uh, building an outdoor compost or getting a compost box or something along those lines is a fantastic way to start. And it's a great way to reduce your food waste and your overall trash that you're sending to landfills and you're having picked up and all those things. You can take your coffee grounds, your used tea, your eggshells, the old vegetables, uh, the ends, uh, the green ends on the carrots that you don't want to eat, all the different things pieces, all the things that you strip off of the vegetables when you peel your carrots or, you know, the banana that just was overripe and you didn't want to eat it. All these things can go in your compost pile and can be uh, recovered and re-nutrify your own, um, for the benefit of your own garden. Uh, So composting is outdoors is one way to do it. Another thing you can do is, as I mentioned, vermicompost or or worm farming. Uh, And that's great for indoors because you can have worms in a five gallon bucket. You can keep worms in a little box uh, if you really want to. Obviously, they're only going to produce so much worm castings and they're only going to take up so much waste if you have only a small amount. Uh, but having a worm bin is a tremendous benefit and actually one of my favorite things. I love uh, vermicompost. Using worm compost is one of the best natural ways to feed your plants. You don't need uh, guanos or cow manure or all any of those other things. Really, vermicompost is mostly all you need. Um, And it has the benefit of providing a lot of natural organisms and fungi along with it uh, that help benefit the soil and build soil structure and all those things. Um, I do put some worms in my pots uh, occasionally, but I tend to keep them in my worm bin, actually. And I use red wrigglers 
is the type of worm I use. Um, I get my worms from Uncle Jim's Worm Farm. Uh, I order them online every time I need, if I need some new worms. But for the most part, once you get worms, if you take care of them, you don't need more. They will double every three months. So if you have 250 worms, you'll have 500 worms in three months and you'll have almost a thousand worms in six months. So they, they will grow to the size of your space and, and, um, you can do them and, you know, get a bunch of 35 gallon totes from target and make your own worm bins and keep these things in your basement. You can go year-round. Uh, if you live in a cold environment like I do, I live in Massachusetts, it freezes in the winter. I can't stir a compost pile. Uh, the wood chips that I would normally add for my browns are also frozen. The leaves are frozen. They're buried in snow or ice. <laughs> and so for me, the alternative in the winter is a worm bin. Uh, or uh, doing some bakashi fermentation. So another great thing that you can do if you're in, if you have an apartment or a small space, you can actually do composting with bakashi. Uh, it's a it's a Japanese technique that uses uh, fermentation uh, to convert your food wastes over to a product that breaks down very quickly in soil. So you could do a 30-day ferment on your food waste in a four or five gallon bucket with a lid, and then take that and mix it with soil in a big tote, let that cook again for another 30 days, and you will have an incredibly rich soil that you can use on your plants. So there's lots of great techniques that we can use, even if you have a very small space. You don't have to have a big compost pile outside and turning it and worrying about temperatures and all those things. Worms are the best, um, but there's also great approaches with um, bakashi. Um, I know people who uh, also, if you have chickens, soldier flies is also a fantastic way to do composting. Um, if you can deal with uh, with all the soldier fly larvae and all that, which the chickens love, uh, so that's um, so that's um, a bit about composting. I like to use compost teas, and um, that's one of the primary ways that I feed my plants. Is I like to brew up a weekly compost tea uh, with an airlift brewer. So before we get into that, sorry yeah. to cut you off. Sure. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into actually a worm bin because okay. I'm actually starting it for the first time. I actually had a podcast episode with Queen of the Sun Grown. I'm not sure if you know who she is. And she actually found out I was not doing composting. And just her, you could sense like a little bit of like frustration in her. Like her just passion came out of her. Oh, yeah. Like once she said that, like, you aren't doing it. Why aren't you doing it? So like it really like... It's kind of like a whip me into shape type thing, right? Yeah. So I went out, I started doing research. I'm about to go buy, I have a plan in place, about to go buy the bins right now. I'm going to buy the, I think they're 18 gallon bins. Okay. I think I'm going to buy two of them. I'm going to yep. double stack it. I'll have yep. worms in there. But just talking about the inputs, I think a lot of people probably in myself included, I'm kind of getting caught up on what to input in there to begin. So my plan is just things I have around the house, right? So junk mail, I get a lot of junk mail that had come in. So putting it through the sh shredder, adding that in there coffee grounds I was going to put in there. I have, I have basil plant and I have some mm -hmm. house plants that are kind of, you know, some of the leaves like die off and stuff, yep. put that in there, you know, lettuce, uh, any salads that I don't eat, banana peels, mm -hmm. hair, I guess you can put your own hair in there as well. Sure. You could. So you can even go that far. I'm trying yep. to think of what other things I plan to add in there. That's kind of the main things that I've, I'm going to be starting with. Oh, grass clippings, clippings from plants outside as well. If I'm like trimming bushes or whatever, I was going to throw that in there. Those tend to be a little bit more for traditional compost piles, especially grass okay. clippings. Um, so you wouldn't recommend them bringing them inside to your worm bin? I don't, I don't know if I would do that. Um, you, I mean, you could bring in some of those uh, items from the outside, but you also got to remember your, your worms are only going to eat so much. Uh, so the first thing you need to gauge is how much food waste are you producing? And then how much do you need to augment on top of that? Okay. Uh, in general, you want to start with shredded paper and some fresh cocoa as the very beginning, the base, and you wet it, you know, you want to squeeze it so that, you know, it pretty much is dry. It's not like 
squeezing out water, but maybe a little bit of a drip. Um, you don't want it to be too dry, but you kind of mix that all together, that paper and that cocoa, and then you put your worms down in that and then give them a day or so to settle in. Um, and then what you want to start using, um, all the, most of those things that you said are great, um, with, uh, banana peels, apple cores, things like that. You want to try to chop them up, uh, because the smaller they are, the faster they're going to break down. Uh, berries are awesome. They love berries. Some, you'll have to kind of gauge sometimes some plants, uh, they don't like, uh, especially the fresh leaves. They may not like them. They might be a little bit too bitter or a little bit too uh, uh, odorous. Um, they don't. Some things they will actually move away from until they break down or dry out. So you might need to. You might want to let the plant material dry. Another thing you need to to keep an eye on is your moisture levels. So uh, if you're putting in a lot of coffee grounds and, and fruit and things like that, you may want to add some extra paper or cardboard or things like that that will help balance off some of that. You don't want it to get too moist in there, right? And you want to make sure that there's some good drainage at the bottom of the of whatever the bin is that you put them in. Gotcha. Yeah, that that's all yeah. good information that I'm I'm definitely yeah. going to be able to use. And like I mentioned, I was going to do the kind of like the double stack bin. So yep. the 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 bin that's stacked inside the other one is going to have the the holes drilled through. Just like you can look up any YouTube video and see how they're drilling holes all around the bottom, and then Absolutely. upon the top as well. Like not the top lid. I guess a lot of people don't do the lid, but they'll do like around. They'll put a couple air holes at the top just because you don't want it to be a closed. Uh, environment. You want some airflow to be able to get in there. So that's why they put a couple of those holes at the top. Yep. And in general, the worms aren't going to escape because they don't like light. So they're going to stay away from the light. Uh, as soon as you open up the bin, the lid on the bin, they're going to dig down in because they don't, they don't want to be near the light. And so even if you have some holes on the side, they're not going to crawl out um, because they're going to try to avoid the light. And then from my understanding, it should be, you know, once, once they're stacked in there, uh, you do it kind of like on a, a weekly basis to where on one week, you're kind of putting things on one side of the bin, you know, lightly covering it. And then the next week you're putting something on the other part of the bin and kind of moving things over. So that way there's yep. some kind of rotation going on. Yep. And then I, I, I do quarters, quarters. Okay. Kind of quadrants, um, and move them around it. And, and again, you need to gauge how fast the worms are consuming what you're putting in. If there's a lot of food left from the previous one, you just let them go. Don't feed them again because uh, you want to give them time. You don't want a large buildup of composters and other types of uh, smaller organisms and insects that you'll see. You will see some other small bugs crawling around in there, um, but those are composters. They're breaking those foods down. Worms don't actually eat the food in most cases. They're eating the molds and bacterias and things that grow on the foods as they break down and their movements and shooting through things is what helps break down some of those materials. They also love avocado. That's a great thing to use. Melons, things like that. Uh, you want to stay away from meats and dairy. Uh, if you're going to be doing mail, be careful to get rid of those little plastic view windows. You don't want those in there. Don't be shredding your credit cards because then you're putting really sharp plastic into your worm bin and the worms aren't going to like that very much. And you really don't want your plastics in there anyway. And, um, you know, I, I always feel a little, uh, have mixed feelings about using mail in general, just because you don't know what they're printing it with. Um, and everything that goes into your worm bin is going to go into the worms themselves and into the castings. And then those casts, whatever goes into those castings is going to go into your plants and then into you. So, um, I try to, uh, I try to, you know, a lot of inks are actually soap based and they don't tend to be chemicals. Um, most printers and things like that, they, they actually print with a, it's kind of a kind of a soap. Um, but you know, I mean, things that are really, really, uh, lots of colors, I try to stay away from things that are very glossy. I'll stay away from, and just try to use things that are, are really just paper 
you know, uh, things that are, you know, bill, electrical bills and, and things like that. Those are fine. Uh, but I would shy away from some of the really, you know, glossy printed stuff that comes in the mail and some of those flyers and things like that. Um, cardboard also cardboard is good, especially if you see recycling symbols on it or made from recycled cardboard, things like that. Um, so those are, those are all good inputs. Okay. And then from my understanding, you know, roughly 30 days could be longer. You know, there's a lot of variables with the temperature and so on and so forth, but roughly 30 days, and then you kind of have vermicompost, which you can use, you can take that and, and top dress your plants with it, for mm -hmm. example. And then my question is underneath. So that second barrel is going to be collecting the, the waste, right? The, the verma, verma tea, right? Verma compost tea yeah. type thing, right? It's a leachate. Leachate, yeah, yeah. Okay. How long does it take for that to develop? And then will it ever go like anaerobic? Like, is there a chance that like, do you need to be moving it around so it doesn't go anaerobic and bad pathogens? Yeah, I would use it right away. It's not something you want to store. It's not something you want to keep. It's, uh, you know, you, I would check your bins once a week um, at least and, and, and then make sure that there isn't a lot of, you know, that moisture, that water, and I would use it right away. That leachate, if you're going to use it, I would not store it or keep it around. You may not get any, I don't get any in my bin. It just depends on your uh, moisture levels of your inputs. Okay. And then that should be diluted. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I, I mean, if you're going to top dress with it, you are kind of diluting it, right? You're not, um, in most cases when you pour, if you pour something on the soil, it's kind of going to dilute naturally but yeah you could mix it in with some water or, or something as part of your feeding um absolutely cool nice well i appreciate you taking some time to answer my questions there because i am about to start which is exciting for me something new you know yeah like i said i like to use the the uh, vermicompost in a compost tea uh, so what i like to do is i i use um paint sprayer bag actually paint strainer bags so when you you can get them at home depot they're super cheap um and they're they're great they make these like five gallon strainer bags and you can put all of you you can put vermicompost and leaf mold and all sorts of things for whatever you're using for your compost tea mixture and uh, they're great and they're easy to clean so you can wash them and use them over and over again um, but that's how i like to use my vermicompost instead of top dressing with it uh, because uh, I don't have enough. If I had a lot of vermicompost, then maybe I would probably top dress with it more. But to stretch it out, I think a great way to do that is to use, you know, a cup or so in a compost tea brew and feed all of the plants off of that tea brew uh, as opposed to just, you know, putting a, like a tablespoon or two on every one of the plants. But that's a great, that's also an easy way to do it is to just walk around, put a tablespoon or two right on top of the soil and the water will naturally wash that stuff in and, 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 uh, provide the benefit. Gotcha. Now talking about compost teas a little bit more, is there anything beyond the traditional things that we hear? I mean, just traditional, you know, people use five gallon buckets, they fill about four gallons mm -hmm. of water. They put about a cup of compost in there. Then, you know, they add a sugar source, brew for around 24 hours, some people up to 48 hours. However, I've heard that there's mm -hmm. issues going that long. Anything to kind of add to that process? Sure, sure. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple of things actually that I can add to that. Number one, if you're going to use molasses uh, as your sugar component, make sure to work that molasses into some warm water before you pour it into your compost tea mixture, okay? And the reason for that is that molasses are highly viscous. And they may, uh, in some cases, end up coating some of the bubbles that are being, that are, you know, showing up as you're brewing. And that coating causes, actually creates a small little anaerobic pocket. And so you end up brewing some anaerobic bacteria as well as your aerobic bacteria. And so you're not fully getting the benefits. So if you take that molasses and mix it with some water first, some warm water first to thin it down and, and kind of break up some of that viscosity and then pour it into your compost tea, good to go. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is you should be aerating the inside of your compost tea bag as well as the outside process that's brewing, right? So I run an airline into the bag itself 
So there's air bubbling inside the bag. So again, I'm not getting an anaerobic pocket if all that material kind of, you know, meshes together and some ways blocks out some of the access to the oxygen in the water that's floating around it, um, it's going to create an anaerobic pocket as well. So you want to keep air inside those bags as well as the air that's happening from the rotation of the tea brew process. Third thing I'll mention is air stones can be problematic because they build up bacteria and not good bacteria over time. So if you clean them and, and or replace them, uh, you probably aren't going to run into any issues. But I would highly recommend just going without the air stone on there, just running the tube of air directly onto the inside of the bag or into the bottoms of your of your thing. Or use an airlift brewer like I use as a better approach as, a, from a, as opposed to air stones, and uh, you'll avoid any possible issues from those. So that's uh, my recommendations. Um, from Korean natural farming, uh, compost tea or liquid IMO is usually brewed for 24 to 36 hours, and we tend to watch it by smell. So uh, when thing, you'll, the smell will change over time of your brew. You'll start out with a sweet and earthy smell, of course, because you have the molasses and some of those other sweeteners in there. So you'll get this like earthy, natural, sweet smell to them. And, and over time, though, if you go too far, uh, you'll actually start to get some moldy, or rotting smells, and that means that you went too far. Uh, so that's kind of one of the things that we watch for a lot in Korean natural farming are smells and tastes uh, when we're, we're creating our preparations. So yeah, usually we don't go beyond 36 hours because you do start to run into some of those conditions where you've started to burn out the good bacteria and you're left with nothing but the uh, bacteria who actually are the cleaners, the, the bacteria that eat the other dead bacteria. <laughs> That's good information. I use air stones right now and uh, I might switch over. But one tip that I, I've heard and what I've been doing is in between brews, right? So after I'm done brewing, I'll take the air stones mm -hmm. and I'll boil them, right? Boil yep. them in water. So that'll kill off, you know, the temperature yep. gets so high, it'll kill off any bacteria on there at all. So that's what I personally do <laughs> in order to prevent. Some hydrogen peroxide could also be useful. Um, but yeah, I, you know, as long as you're cleaning them and maintaining them, if you use them again and again every day and they're just sitting there bubbling away day after day, you're going to start to attract molds and bacteria inside that stone that will do bad things. Makes sense. So I know we're kind of going off course here from the, the list of questions I gave you, uh, but I think it's really good that we're going because there's a lot of good information here. Is there anything else? Can you talk to us about some other things that you think that home gardeners can do as far as implementation practices for generative gardening? Yeah. Yeah. So um, again, I think um, using composting is, is an important practice uh, that you should consider. Uh, one of the, one of the great resources that most home gardeners have access to actually is leaf mold. Leaf mold is an incredible input. And basically leaf mold is the stuff you find underneath your pile of leaves. That's not quite soil, but almost soil. Well, that's pure humic, humic humus. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful organic material. And you can actually take that and put that in uh, with, mix that in with your soils to kind of give them a um, inoculation actually of natural organisms and life uh, that will help those plants get started if you're trying to follow into a living and organic um, uh, type of an approach. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that I, I, we should probably cover is, is just real briefly soils, because there's a lot of different terms for soils, right? You have, um, soilless mediums, uh, you have soil, uh, soil itself is sand, silt, and clay, humic material and biology, right? Uh, so you can't have, uh, actual soil if you don't have the biological compound the biology in there too that's what turns dirt into soil is the life the humic uh the humic materials and the life the biology you also hear a lot of these terms living soil and super soil 
right? That's a common uh, terms of phrase that are used out there uh, often. Uh, super soil is really a enriched soil, okay? Super soil is actually a specific recipe created by, super, by a specific person that had a specific set of materials and inputs in it. Shout uh, out to Subcool. <laughs> that's right. Uh, he coined uh, super soil. Uh, but the reality is it's an enhanced medium. Uh, it's not a true soil. Some people will refer to it as a soilless medium because you're taking soil and then you're mixing in a lot of other compounds and substrates, peats, uh, perlites, uh, uh crab meal, lobster compost, different types of things. And when you do that, you're kind of getting away from real true soil and you're, you're creating what I like to refer to as enhanced or enriched soil. And that tends to actually be my base. So I actually use uh, Costa Maine Stonington blend is my primary base, uh, has a tremendous amount of really good organic compounds. It's made here in New England where I live, Costa Maine, I'm in Massachusetts. So it's, it's, um, it's a product that's produced here. It has a lot of peat in it. It has lobster compost. Uh, it has some kelp some uh, kelp meal and some other great things. So it's an enriched medium. Um, living soil, on the other hand, is actually true natural soil that is alive. And you're relying on the biology, worms, arthropods, ciliates, all the bacterial and fungal life that you're promoting to create the nutrients that the plant needs to survive. Right. And um, to do true living soil as a home gardener, as a home grower, you need at least a 35 gallon pot, which can be difficult for people indoors, especially you need you need something on wheels. Um, a lot of people have been moving into uh, no till beds, living soil beds. And I mentioned no tilling earlier on in the podcast, right? And so this is a fantastic approach for anybody who's looking to go completely regenerative, completely closed loop, is using living soil beds as opposed to pots. Um, having a two by two living soil bed is actually, is, is a two by two pot is about 35, 40 gallons of soil. A three by three is about 75 gallons of soil, a four foot by four foot bed is actually about a hundred gallons of soil. So imagine trying to lift a hundred gallons of soil. It's, you can't do it. You actually have to shovel the soil out of those beds if you don't have them on wheels. Um, I've seen people fill their tent with one big four by four uh, living soil bed and it's a beautiful approach. Um, you're allowing, uh, you're using cover crops you're utilizing worms, you're using, utilizing um, natural uh, type, you're using companion plants, uh, which is also great. Um, and you're allowing the, you're building basically a natural environment uh, that's alive and as close to a biodynamic approach as possible, as close to a natural approach as possible. You're trying to create the outdoors inside. You're allowing the plant to naturally manage the biology and the soil to get what it needs. And it's a fantastic approach. I have a friend, uh, Blue, uh, who uses avocado tech uh, to help uh, keep his uh, living soil beds going. And he, uh, he's gone 16, 17 cycles in the same beds. All he does is chop the plant. He leaves all the roots and everything in. He lets leaves and things fall to the ground. He's got cover crops in there that he chops and drops and smashes down. But he also uses this great thing called avocado tech. Yeah, I'm actually he, uh, having him on the podcast soon to talk all about avocado awesome. tech. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic guy and a great friend of mine. Uh, we actually went to a regenerative conference together, which is where I met him. Um, and his avocado tech is fantastic. And so he makes kind of a guacamole uh, with some uh, crab meal and some other inputs, azomite and some good natural inputs. 
makes this guacamole and stuffs it back in the in the avocado skin and puts it face down on the uh, soil. And what happens is, is the worms actually come up out of the soil bed and run through the avocado and move and actually bring all that nutrient goodness back down into the soil naturally for him. He put, he uses three avocados, uh, uh, an entire cycle. That's his whole deal. That's incredible. And other than that, he just puts, he just has water dripping with the blue mat system, um, which is an incredible water saving system. Um, I love blue mat. Um, I don't, I myself don't run, I try to use as little water as possible. So I don't, uh, I keep my plants wet, but I don't water to run off, which a lot of people do. Um, I'm just trying to use just as much water as I need to keep the plants wet, I'm not trying to soak them down. Um, but I'm, and I'm trying to make sure that they've, obviously they don't develop dry spots, but, um, just trying to keep them wet. Uh, blue mats are a great system that is a passive system. Even you don't really even need any power for them. You can use gravity um, and basically fill you fill a bucket of water, and um, you use these. Uh, they have these carrots, these electrostatic carrots that basically sit in the soil and detect soil moisture. And based on the level of moisture, they let water drip. And so you get these little drips of water all day long. And that's actually one of the most efficient watering systems around because you're allowing the plants actually to dictate the moisture level in the soil. And they just get as much as they need. If they're really thirsty, you're going to use up some more water, but you're only using what the plant needs. You're not pouring a ton on and having runoff and then throwing that out. Um, you're not, you know, trying to recycle. You don't need to. It's all keeping maintained. And the only thing that, you know, it only drips as needed. Uh, they're really, really great systems. I really enjoy using the blue mat. I'm not using them. I don't have them plugged in right now, but I'm probably going to be going back to them too. And they tend to develop some amazing root balls as well. Really, really impressive root structures when you use the, when you use that type of an approach. I, I've been using blue mats and you see pictures online. You can see like the roots coming up going towards the dripper you know where it's actually dripping and i believe it can kind of clog your lines too right if you're not if you're not keeping an eye on it the root will go all the way up into the there and clog it so you got to be careful yeah. there but yeah once you get that saturation rate down as far as what you want yeah, in that container stick the carrot in there you got it hooked up to your res just all gravity fed yep. you know if you're using organics you're just top dressing the medium staying that moisture right. level that it needs to be for that those microbes to break down right. those amendments and it's it's so much hands off compared to right. a synthetic bottled nutrient line where you're mixing nutrients sure. every week sometimes twice a week in order to you know hand water your plant or i mean you can always put you can always do the synthetic nutrients in the blue mat as well but just in general like you have if, to be careful yeah yeah because <laughs> you'll, you'll clog the you'll, you can you clog could. those lines if you're not careful you'd have to flush them often um so you, you definitely have to be careful especially with some of the organic nutrients yep uh, some of those tend to be uh thick like i used to use uh, medi one from green planet and that stuff is like just sludge <laughs> <laughs> the main base, uh, be, but it's an organic medical base. It's a great product, really beautiful, but I definitely wouldn't have fed that through the blue mats. Right, right. So one more thing let's uh, talk about before we wrap things up. I kind of want to get into cover crops a, a little bit. So mm. I've been using cover crops. I just use the white Dutch clover right now. I know it's well mm. known for nitrogen fixation, right? It's going to take yep. nitrogen in the air, convert it to a form that's usable by the plant. The plant will be able to uptake it. Now, can you talk to us just about your knowledge about cover crops? You know, what other cover crops can we be using in an indoor environment, home growers, and, you know, the benefits of, of cover crops? Yeah, I, um, I, I, there's a lot of mixes out there already on the market, and, and most of them have a combination of different types of clovers, uh, white clovers, red clovers, uh, which actually have different benefits, both the red and the white clovers, uh, vetch sweet peas, um, different types of grasses, and um, having a mix of different types of cover crops is actually a benefit. Uh, I think Ray Archuleta is up to like 16 or 17 different crops uh, in his mix that he's been testing and, and that he's using out in his fields for cattle and things like that. Um, it depends on, um, you know, what you're 
what you're trying to accomplish. I know there's also been some information out recently about clover um, and uh, uh, start avoiding clover in some cases because mites love clover. Oh, interesting. So um, although you might, you know, you might not necessarily have mites on your plants, they might be in your clover. So it could be a trap plant, it might be good for a trap plant to keep the mites off of your plant. Uh, it might encourage them to go after the clover because they love clover. Um, and I know there's a, a few folks out there, I think Tad Hussey, possibly Kiss Organics or one of the other gentlemen. Um, he actually stopped using clovers in his mixes because of the mite problems uh, that can develop, especially if you're outdoors using uh, clover in your mixes. So um, I love vetch. Um, I love sweet peas. Uh, beans are also great if you plant beans, rosemary, thyme. Um, even throw, you know, you can throw some of your companion plants in there as well. Uh, calendula uh, is a great plant to put in there. Uh, marigolds, uh, you can put those in there as well. They have good IPM benefits. They help keep pests away. Um, lavender, thyme, rosemary, uh, things like that. And if you're doing a living soil bed, you may want to consider some of the perennial forms of that because there's like climbing forms of rosemary and thyme that you could grow for years and years and kind of, you know, grow it uh, throughout your bed or in your environment and um, maybe bonsai it even if you want. But having a good variety of plants in your uh, mix is really important. Uh, blue even, I think he even has squash growing um, and some other vegetables and things in his living soil beds as well. But yeah, no, I, I, I like the vetches and grasses and I, I still use some clover in my mix as well because of that nitrogen fixation. I think some of the thing that people should also remember, though, is that to get the full benefits out of cover crops, you need to chop and drop. Explain that, because I don't think people know what it, exactly it is. Right. So um, in general, right, uh, you should never have naked soil. Keep your soil covered. Um, I like to use rice holes uh, and a mix of... Uh, I do a mix with some wood shavings, some bakashi, and then uh, a bunch of rice holes. And I put about an inch, inch and a half deep on the top of my soil. Keep your soil covered at all times, indoors or outdoors. Exposed soil outdoor is actually one of the problem, one of the um, things that is causing climate change and CO2 uh, release. Um, again, as they till the fields, they turn the soil over and expose the carbon in the soil to the oxygen, which creates CO2, carbon, oxygen, CO2, and it rises. And they've actually photographed, uh, NASA has uh, maps that show the, the, the increases in CO2 release from space, the increases in CO2 release at the times when they're tilling all the fields. You can actually see this from space. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely something that, that you want to try to, uh, to avoid, but, um, so you want to, you want to use those mulches, uh, those green mulches or cover crops are also beneficial. The cover crops themselves will in some cases release beneficial things into the soil, uh, nitrogen fixing, like you were saying, clover releases nitrogen. Actually, that's a great thing for your lawn. Don't get rid of the clover in your lawn, add the clover back in, because if you add the clover back in, you don't need Scott's fertilizer on your lawn because the clover will help your grass. You don't need it. Get all the nitrogen you need from the worms and the clover. Uh, but <laughs> um, so you want to then um, what's called chop and drop. So you chop those cover crops, you chop them down, you cut them, snip, 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 like mowing, um, you don't cut them all the way to the ground or, or kill them. The idea is you want to cut them so that you're leaving some of the plant to grow back, like you're mowing the lawn almost. And then you leave that material in the pot, in the soil to become a natural mulch. When plants grow, they are carbon capture machines. Everything that a plant produces is car comes with a carbon exchange. Okay, everything, whether it's their smell, their body, their leaves, their stems, their fruits, 
all of it has to do with a carbon exchange and the, and are created as they have carbon they're part of carbon they have carbon everything has carbon in it and so plants are as they grow they are capturing carbon and other minerals and nutrients and if you drop them directly into the soil and allow them to go back into the ground you're re-nutrifying you're putting those minerals that carbon and those vitamins and nutrients back into the soil where they can be recaptured by the biology and the plants okay so cover crops themselves are beneficial because they help retain moisture in the soil they help keep your soil uh, covered um, and in many in some cases as we were saying they'll help add uh, nutrients back into the soil cutting them down and dropping them in also helps add remineralize the soil if you take that stuff out what's happening is those plants are leaching minerals and nutrients out of the soil and then if you chop them and take them away you basically lost all those minerals and nutrients from your soil if you drop them back in <laughs> <laughs> you're putting them back in the ground where they came from. Uh, so that's kind of the idea. And then ideally, to really take advantage of chop and drop, you need worms. You need biology in the soil that's going to break down those uh, compounds back into um, minerals and nutrients that the plant can absorb. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I've been practicing chop and drop for a couple grows now. And yeah, it's something I'm definitely going to continue to do because it makes sense. You know, it makes sense. And yep. you're saving on nutrients in a sense, right? I mean, if you're putting yep. it back into the system that it was in, it's just breaking down. And then the plant is uptaking it eventually. And I think a perfect yep. example of chop and drop, which a lot of people don't really think of, is when you're mowing your lawn. Right? You should keep those lawn clippings there, as ugly as they may be sometimes, right? Keep them there because those are going to break down and that'll rejuvenate your lawn. Like you mentioned, you get to spend less money on Scott's fertilizer if you do it that way. Yep. So, Don't rake your leaves, mulch them in. Mulch them in, yeah. Good point. Absolutely, because that's all fantastic beneficial nutrients back into the soil. Uh, when you haul those things away, you're robbing your environment of those those uh, great, great natural materials. I mean, you look at the rainforest, right? The rainforest, nobody cleans and picks those leaves up, right? Nobody, the plants drop, they fall, they die, animals swing through, break stuff, eat stuff. Uh, and they're these extremely healthy environments. Why? Because everything's is retained within that environment. Nothing gets taken out of that environment and taken away. Well said. Well, we covered quite a bit in this podcast. I mean, this hour flew by. Definitely a lot of great information here. I definitely think there's some information here that home gardeners will be able to grasp onto. Um, you explained it in a very beginner-friendly manner. Hopefully, some of you guys will be able to implement this into your gardens. You know, I'm doing composting now. I'm doing chop and drop. We covered a whole bunch of other things. But really, in the grand scheme of things, we didn't cover a lot at all when it comes to regenerative gardening. There's so much more to it. And maybe in the future, the yeah, yeah, we just scratched the surface. So maybe sometime in the future, we can have you on for a part two and kind of get deeper Absolutely. into things because I definitely think there's a lot of other things that we could have covered. So yeah, I appreciate your time here. I encourage people to look for opportunities to use the things they have around them in some way, shape or form, whether it's your food waste, whether it's your uh, leaves, uh, grass clippings, plants, all of the stuff around you are natural, beneficial items that can be incorporated into your garden in some way, shape, or form. Keep your soils covered. Don't have naked soil. Um, and look for opportunities to uh, keep the plants in the ground, keep the ground intact when you harvest as well, right? So chop the plant at the stalk, leave the roots in there, let that biology, let that nat all those natural, wonderful things that are going on in that soil continue. Don't rip out that, um, don't rip it out, plant right next to it, keep moving around. Uh, if you're in small pots, obviously you're gonna be, uh, 
having to redo those pots. You can't really do uh, living soil in a five-gallon pot, uh, as I was saying earlier. So if you're in pots, uh, you can actually recycle your soil even. So when you're done with your cycle of that plant, take the roots Take the roots and rinse the soil off of it. You can soak those roots in water and pull, that will pull sugars and exudites out of them. And you can use them also to feed your plants and water your plants with. You can save that soil and actually add compost and natural things back into it and let it cook over the winter. Um, and in the spring, you can utilize it. You can do it in bins in your basement as well. Uh, you could take a mix in worm castings. So take your worm castings, mix it in with some of that used soil um, and maybe do a little avocado tech on top. And you won't, after a while, if you have a good amount of soil and you have a good process going, you don't actually have to go buy soil either. You can build up to the point where you have a good pile of soil that you recycle and you can re um, you can remineralize so that you can use it over and over again. That's another place where you can look to preserve and save some money and um, try to do some more regenerative practices and really looking to um, again reduce waste. I think that's the best uh, thing to do. Look look for opportunities to use the things around you. Um, don't uh, if you're in the middle of Kansas, you don't need oyster shells. <laughs> well said. Well, wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you? And what do you have upcoming in the future? Uh, so I can be found every day on Instagram where I post pictures of my garden every morning uh, at Hota Herb, J-O-T-A-H-E-R-B on Instagram. I can also be found extremely frequently on Clubhouse. So for those that are uh, unaware, Clubhouse is an app that's available on both iOS and Android. It's free to join. You don't need to be invited anymore. And it's a fantastic uh, audio-only uh, conversation app. Um, and so I'm on there uh, having conversations with people about growing and agriculture. Uh, but also I, do a, I host a show every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, which is also simulcast on YouTube. Awesome. Well, I will provide a link to his Instagram down in the description section below. If you like this video, click that thumbs up button, comment, drop a comment below. Let us know uh, what you think of this video. Let us know what regenerative practices you do in your garden. We'd love to hear. Like I said, we just scratched the surface on this one. There's a lot more to talk about. So let us know what you do and what you recommend down in the comment section below. If you haven't already, subscribe to the channel. I release these podcast episodes every single weekend, either Saturdays or sometimes Sundays, depending on how the weekend goes, depending on if Susan from YouTube uh, approves the video and allows me to post it on time or not. <laughs> also, if you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. I'm coming up to 200 ratings and reviews. That's what we're trying to get to next. And there has actually been a lot of people leaving ratings and reviews lately. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, please, please leave that rating and review. And yeah. Thank you so much one more time for coming on to this podcast and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. It's been a great, great conversation and absolutely happy to have another one again. So thanks everybody and happy growing. Take care. Peace.